0: Today's episode is brought to you by Unanimous Craft. Unanimous Craft is a website where you can find places to sell your handmade and small batch work. It's basically an online index of brick and mortar shops, online selling venues, and craft shows around the country. Visit unanimouscraft.com/naps for a special offer just for Walsh Naps listeners. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 81 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about book publishing with my guests, Sarah Berkholz and Jennifer Urban Brown of Roost Books, an imprint of Shambhala. Sarah is the executive vice president of Shambhala and the publisher of Roost Books. She started Roost Books with Jen in 2012. Shambhala was started by her father, Sam Burkholtz, in the 1960s and the company remains in the family. Sarah, welcome. Thanks, Abby. Thanks for being here. And Jennifer Urban Brown is an avid knitter, a B-plus sewer, and a dabbling baker. She's been an editor at Roost Books, Shambhala Publications since 2006, where she has the great privilege of working on books that truly inspire her and that reflect the things that she cherishes most in life, creativity and community. Born in Weymouth, Massachusetts and raised on Martha's Vineyard, her father likes to remind her that she is 50% Jersey girl. She credits her partial Jersey roots for her love of Bruce Springsteen. John, welcome. Thanks, Abby. Yeah, nice to see you guys. We're at least here, you guys, and I'm really glad that we get a chance to talk today. So we are going to dive right into craft publishing and Roost books and Shambhala, and I wondered if you could describe what makes a roost book? Um, So I'm not sure which one of you wants to take that one, but I'll let you choose.
1: We'll probably tag team it. Um, (laughs) It's something that we're constantly trying to get a handle on and keep um, refining our vision on what it means. But at the core of it, um, we really want our books to have a positive impact on people's lives. Um, Shambhala Publications publishes books that are more overt in the way that they do that, dealing a lot with spirituality and psychology, religion, and those kinds of sort of higher um, ideas, so to speak. Roost deals more with the things that we do with our hands and our hearts and um we still really want those things to be significant in people's lives and for the books to bring some level of richness into um, one's world. So that's a piece of it. Um, And I guess specifically for the craft
2: side of the list, um, our craft books really try to speak to a more personal expression of craft so our books are either meant to inspire a connection with our materials or the environment. Um, they're meant to help us connect to our family, or friends, or community, or really be a place where we can go um, more internal or deeper with ourselves as a source of connection.
0: Right. Um, and there's, it seems like there's this focus that carries through everything, both Shambhala and Roost on the word enlightenment
1: yeah i think so enlightenment or enrichment or um realization yeah (laughs) and again you know it's a more overt on the shambhala side and on the roost side um i think we we really try to bring that to um the domestic or the creative part of people's lives not um you know, that it's not that different from one's spiritual life, but it's as much of a high calling.
0: Right. I think that's very true. And I think that's a, an idea that's becoming increasingly appealing to people. Um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of different uh, conferences and things where it's almost as though craft is a form of meditation or mind-body connection. I think that that's uh, an idea that's taking hold right now. Yeah. Yes. Um, and within crafts, what kind of, um, books, like what kind of topic areas within crafts just to give people a sense of sort of some of the, some of the meat of what the books are about.
2: We don't discriminate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am, uh, personally really drawn to knitting books. So one of the few knitting titles we've done is called Adventures in Yarn Farming, um, where we're invited onto Barbara Perry's sheep farm and get to learn the whole process of raising yarn from the hoof. Um, we also do uh, more traditional sewing books. So we worked with Tilly Whelans on her book, Glove at First Stitch, which is kind of a guide to garment sewing, kind of an intro book. Um, we've worked with Maya Donenfeld on her book, Hope Make Heal, which is really pan craft. It goes through a lot of different types of projects, um, with a more, um, personal focus. Um, and we're doing a lot of embroidery books currently working with, um, some Japanese publishers to bring out some really gorgeous botanical embroidery books here. So We really do cover a pretty broad range in the books we publish in the category.
0: Right. So it's more about kind of the intention of the book than it necessarily is about, you know, we only, we don't do paper crafts, so we only do knitting or something We do do paper crafts. (laughs) Right. No, I'm saying like you would take on a book about any kind of craft if it had the right kind of um, sort of intentionality behind it.
2: Absolutely, or message. And sometimes that's more overt. Um, Again, Maya Donenfeld's book, Hope May Heal is about um, working with grief through craft. But we've also done some books that um, the kind of personal or inspiring quality of it is more hidden. And it's just something we felt like um, the crafts themselves um, inspired something wonderful in ourselves. So we wanted to share that with the world. Right.
1: Like some of the Japanese um, craft books that we've done, Jen mentioned uh, the embroidery books that we've been doing, but we've also done some sewing books and paper cutting. And there's just a very delightful quality to them. And there's nothing overt in the language that makes it particularly deep or something like that. It's just that they're really beautiful and there's a certain kind of Delight and quietude and richness to the feeling you get from even just looking at one, but then especially if you dive into some of the projects. So it doesn't have to be really overt. It can just be kind of a subtle thing that exists in the aesthetic or the quality within the pages.
2: And with those books, we're really trying to point to a lifestyle as well. Like this is a really nice thing to bring into our lives as a way to create um inspiration and quiet
0: right i love that i love that idea of quiet as being part of sort of your your ethos or your your outlook um on craft and craft publishing so and um i know you published amanda blake soul's books um and that very first one it seems like it came out right when ruse was sort of becoming an independent or an imprint of shambhala and i wondered if there was some interplay there? Like, was there an influence of the success of Amanda's book that sort of helped you start or have confidence in starting Roost?
1: Um, So I'm going to let Jen mostly talk about Amanda because she is responsible for bringing her into our family. But um, Roost sort of came out of Jen and I each having really strong interest in books that didn't exist outside the identity of Shambhala particularly, but that weren't the typical Shambhala book. And Jen started working with people like Amanda and I started acquiring cookbooks. And um, so there was a few books that came out um, that mostly Jen had acquired prior to us starting Roost in an official way. Um, And Amanda was one of those authors that kind of put some fire under us so jen want to talk about amanda (laughs) (laughs)
2: um i adore amanda she's just such a dear dear person and um The Creative Family was the first book that we did with her, which is, it's almost coming up on its 10-year anniversary, which
0: is kind of hard to believe. Amazing. Uh, (laughs) Amanda and I started our blogs in the same month, and so we we are old friends, and it's just, I bought the book immediately when it came out, and um, I remember devouring it and giving it to friends, and that's amazing, it's been so long.
2: I know, it's crazy. So it's one of the very first books that I acquired when I started at Shambhala. Um, And at that time, I was really trying to think of ways we could um, expand Shambhala's list into other categories. Um, And creativity and family life were things that really much on my mind. And um, I came up with this idea of kind of creative family living. And it was one of those um, kismet moments when I reached out to Amanda, she was like, I was already writing the proposal for this book. So it was just the perfect match. And um, I do think, you know, Amanda and then Sarah's cookbooks were really the foundation for what became Roost. Um, we were kind of exploring those ideas um, and building that list before we really knew we were building that list.
0: Yeah, that's nice. I'm, I I think it's a neat way to, to sort of grow, um, to start with that symbiosis with Amanda because she's she really embodies a lot of what we just talked about, I think. so, um, mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could just um, tell me maybe, Sarah, what does what Shambhala, that word, mean? I had actually never heard that word before yeah. um, before Amanda's book um, when it was on the spine. And I just wondered what that word means.
1: Sure. Well, um, Shambhala refers to an ancient kingdom that exists in <clears throat> Somewhere in the Himalayas, it sort of has over time switched from country to country as things have shifted um, in terms of the way that geography looks. But um, it is a historical place um, and it is said to have been an enlightened society. And um, as part of that enlightened society, um, all of the things that are included in one's life were part of that enlightenment. So it wasn't people just sitting around on meditation cushions and being really blissed out or anything like that. It was all of the people doing all of the work that are part of a society. So householders and um, skilled laborers and um, everybody from those kinds of people to the higher thinkers and the king and the queen we're all enlightened, so they say. So um, the word Shambhala comes from that. And um, I really love that um, and feel that Roost fits very strongly into that vision um, of what Shambhala means in expressing the, like I was saying before, the sort of domestic and creative and um family side of what it means to live an enlightened life.
0: Right. And Roost is a is a very apt name for for that. Yeah. <laughs> when
1: we were thinking of um when we were starting the imprint and having meetings to think about what we wanted to call it and what our vision was, Jen and I both brought Roost as a possible um name for the imprint so
0: yeah that's (laughs) funny yeah it was meant to be um so so shambhala um is based in boulder now is that right that's correct okay so but that wasn't always the case and i i wondered um sarah maybe you can trace for us the history of Shambhala a little bit, just from when your your father, Sam Berkowitz, founded the company and kind of the brief version of, of how it got to where sure. it is today. Sure. So um,
1: my father started a small bookshop in the basement of Moe's bookstore in Berkeley, California on Telegraph Avenue. And out of that little bookshop within a bookshop, he opened a Um, slightly larger independent bookstore called Shambhala Booksellers just down the street in Berkeley. Um, And um, uh, some years after he started that, he was in his late teens when he started the bookstore. Um, He had a sort of mentor figure in England who was publishing a book called Meditation in Action by Chogyam Trungpa. And this gentleman in England sent my father the manuscript and asked, did he want to publish it in the U S and my father says that because he was ignorant enough to think he could be a publisher, he said, yes. And, um, that's how he started his publishing career. So Shambhala booksellers came first and Shambhala publications was born out of that. And, um, In the 70s, Shambhala Publications moved to Boulder, Colorado, when Chogyam Trungpa, um, that first author, settled here. And um, my father and mother had become students of his as well as his publisher. And so they moved the business here to Boulder. The bookstore remained in Berkeley. And then... um, Following that, Chicken Principe moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and uh, there was a plan to move Shambhala Publications there. And as a stopping-off point, Shambhala Publications moved to Boston, and uh, it never worked to move the company into Canada. So it stayed in Boston for three (laughs) decades. So that was a long stopping off point. Um, And then um, about six years ago, um, my father asked my brother and I if we wanted to keep the business in the family. And we agreed that we did. We were both active in the company already. And in thinking about what we wanted the future to look like. We thought, well, the possibilities are open for, um, what that looks like on a lot of levels, including where we were based. And while Boston was a really great place for Shambhala publications to become a very established and well-respected business, I think a lot of what we want for the future looks more creative and community oriented and, um, a little less um, stuffy than sometimes Boston felt. So we thought a lot about where we wanted to go and we did a lot of traveling and um, looking at different places and what they might hold for us. And after doing starting with Boulder and circling around for a couple of years, we landed back on it and we moved to Boulder. Shambhala opened its doors in Boulder a year ago And, um, we're sitting here in my office looking out at the mountains and, um, it's been a
0: pretty crazy year, but
1: really excellent. And, um, it does feel like, uh, the right place for us.
0: And, um, Jen, we met in 2013, I think when you were still in the Boston area, we did a little panel discussion about craft publishing and so, um, you decided to relocate, as did um Carissa, I think, who I know knew in Boston too.
2: That's right, yeah, we all came
0: out, yeah, so um, that's kind of a sign of uh a dedicated staff, I feel like <laughs> <laughs> not everybody would be like, "Yes, I'm gonna you know sell my house or just pick up and move all the way you know it's far it's far from from Boston's boulders, a very different life, so. <laughs>
2: It is far. I'll say that Shambhala is a really wonderful place to work. And a lot of us feel very lucky to work at a company that feels very uh, humane and kind, and where we get to work on books that we really believe in. So it's a hard thing to let go of. And for many of us, the move to Boulder felt like an interesting adventure. It was hard to pass up.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I haven't been to Boulder, but uh, it's on my list. So, Um, And I feel like some of the topics of the books from Shambhala's list back in the late 60s and the 70s, which were kind of countercultural at that time, like Buddhism and martial arts and yoga, uh, certainly yoga and alternative medicine, that sort of thing. Those things are now so... Many of them are so mainstream now. I mean, and you know, yoga has become really mainstream now, and and also they've become commercial. You know, they've become things that are big business. Um, and you guys have have ridden that wave, and it's it. And I mean, there's those things are still relevant, but they're they're relevant in a new way.
1: Yeah. Well, when my dad started Shambhala Booksellers, he had interest in pretty much everything that at that time was pretty weird and, um, and counterculture and obscure. And he wasn't the only person that was interested in those things. And he brought books in on all kinds of world traditions and the occult. And um, his bookstore became a sort of landmark place for, learning about those things. And then, yeah, over the course of Shambhala's history we're now somewhere around 45 years old. Um, Many of those things, it's true, are um, very much part of um, mainstream culture and best-selling books. Um, Everybody knows who the Dalai Lama is. Everybody has tried yoga at least once. (laughs) Um, Many people are open to different forms of thinking about health and um, well-being. And um, we still pretty much do the same things. It's just that those are part of the mainstream now. And we still try to really uphold the quality of the books that we're publishing in those areas and keeping really true to the traditions that they come from.
0: I wanna take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Rosalie Gale from Unanimous Craft.
3: I'm Rosalie Gale from Unanimous Craft.
0: And what is Unanimous Craft?
3: Unanimous Craft is a website where you can find places to sell your handmade and small batch goods.
0: Okay, so you can find places like stores and craft fairs?
3: Yeah, there's uh, three different sections. So you can find uh, brick and mortar retail shops that sell handmade items, You can find uh, online venues, so websites where you can submit your work uh, to sell through their website, and then also people who produce craft shows around the country. I've done a huge amount of research into all all of these places, and there's also the ability on the site to rate and review each of these different locations. So... Uh, eventually, um, that information will be sort of like a shared, it will be shared information for our community. The comments could be simple things just as like, what kinds of products are they looking for? So you can see if your, are uh, if what you're making is going to be a good fit for that location. I have been making shower art, which is waterproof art that you can hang in your shower with a suction cup under my business name, Ugly Baby, for about the past 10 years. So I've done just about every craft show out there <laughs> that's reasonable to do. I sell at a lot of the stores uh, that sell handmade items. Um, so I have a lot of experience with with this community. If you um, subscribe for a year long premium membership on the site, then you get access to our craft show calendar, which shows the dates that applications open and close for uh, shows all around the country. And to find that information, you would go to unanimous craft slash naps. And there's a a discount code just for While She Naps listeners.
0: Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Rosalie. Yeah, thank you. And now back to my conversation with Sarah and Jen. And are some of those older books still in print? Yes,
1: many of them, including our first book that I mentioned before, Meditation in Action. Um, We actually really pride ourselves on the strength of our backlist and the way that we publish, which is thinking about books having a value um, beyond the first year or a few years of the book's life, but for, uh, you know, hopefully all ages, <laughs> all times.
0: Right. So keeping those books alive is is important to you.
1: It is. And we do for books that are, I mean, not every book that we've ever published is still in print, but Um, In as much as we can, we try to um, do short run printings of books that still sell, even if it's sort of slow, um, because there is value in those pages and to the people who want to find out about the thing that that book talks about. So we really make an effort in that way.
0: And so when I think about craft um becoming mainstream or sort of domestic arts and family and um handmade and that kind of thing I kind of, I think about Martha Stewart because I feel like um her influence in taking domestic arts seriously um sort of seeped into our culture um and made those things mainstream that they would be beautifully produced and would be kind of you know something worth paying money for and um and I just wondered if you see that if you see you know some overall cultural influence of Martha that still affects sort of the way that craft publishing functions
2: (laughs) I've never thought about
1: that (laughs) to be honest
2: um I think she certainly as you said kind of raised the awareness or raised the value of creating home and um having a certain knowledge about how to care for yourself and your home and the people around you. So I think she certainly had a hand in elevating all of
0: that. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, I think that that affects craft blogs and um, craft publishing and sort of the whole industry to a degree in in a way that, you know, is her legacy and um, is pretty powerful. You know, it was a long legacy and it's still going. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
1: we have um, we have a number of Martha Stewart alum on our list <laughs> as authors and um, artists and whatnot. And um, I had the pleasure of meeting Martha in the bathroom at the James Beard Awards. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and how was she? <laughs> um, tipsy. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so um, so speaking of, of blogs, um, I wondered how you view the food blogs, because there's such beautiful food blogs now, and there's so many food blogs. And food blogging is a huge industry now in and of itself. Um, and also craft blogs, of which I think there's probably somewhat fewer but those that are still here are very professionalized, many of them and, um, you know, look like the pages of Martha Stewart, let's say. So when you as a publishing house look at the bloggers, the sort of indie publishers that are all online, do you see that as like a pool of talent? Do you see that as like competition or kind of how are you viewing those blogs?
1: Well, we really started out as a publisher of bloggers, I mean, I think, um, I think, you know, with Amanda and with our first, um, cookbook, who was also the first, um, book that we published as a roost book was La Tartine Gourmand by Beatrice Peltra. And, um, many of our early books, especially, but continuing on now are, um, from authors who have established themselves in that way. Um, I definitely don't really view it as competition. Um, I feel definitely overwhelmed by the amount of material that there is now. I think when we started there, it was clear who was doing something special and, um, I think we got lucky early on finding really special people and making those connections and um, establishing ourselves and them in that way. Now it's much harder to navigate. Uh, It's a totally overwhelming landscape. (laughs)
0: Um, I think you said that so well, that it was clear who was doing something special because the pool was so small and the people who really had a unique message or a unique point of view um whether it was aesthetically or with the content that they were creating um you know attracted a lot of attention and it was really clear and now it's so it seems so easy and there's so many tips and tricks and shortcuts to creating something that on the surface looks as polished and as Um, special and and it's harder to dig through and you know pinterest and figure out well which of these is actually from someone who's got a unique vision and and it's it's overwhelming as you said
1: it really is i i don't actually know how to navigate it at this point i rely on somebody else to sort of tell me about (laughs) (laughs) something that they're reading that they are really enjoying i think um you know, it used to be that you could sort of like go on one or two or three of your very favorite blogs and sort of see who they were reading and get a real sense of um, what the community looked like. But it's just so vast at this point. Um, and, you know, we really are looking for people who don't just have a shiny exterior or um, a certain look necessarily we're definitely looking for depth in the way that somebody presents whatever world it is that they're involved in and a lot of heart in that. So,
0: Right. And digging out who's got that depth is harder. So, so, um, so let's talk a little bit about what you are looking for, because I think some of the people who would be listening to this podcast would be maybe, you know, coming up with an idea that they might want to propose. So looking at the website, it looks like Shambhala accepts uh, emailed proposals, but Roost doesn't. Is that still true?
2: Um, <laughs> we're both giving you, <laughs> we have puzzled looks on our faces. Um, I think we're su- getting submissions by email for Roost. I, are we? It should be the same guidelines as for Shambhala. Yeah,
1: it should be. Um, we're actually in the process of redoing our website, so then <laughs> no,
2: might... we'll get clear.
0: Okay, so e- emailed submissions are okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. yes, I just they want are. to be sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so if an author or, you know, a hopeful author is out there and is thinking, okay, this, you know, this point of view sounds like right up my alley and would be a good fit. Um, what do you suggest that he or she does now to kind of get ready or get a proposal ready for you? What are you looking for?
2: Um, Well, I think we're looking for a distinct point of view and a strong sense of personality Um, with the amount of blogs in the world, the amount of books coming out. I think it's really important to um, have a distinctive voice. So that's one thing that we're looking for. Um...
1: (laughs) What else? (laughs) That's mostly what we look for. And then it's sort of a weeding out process from there. I mean, you know, there are... Definitely people who are doing really valuable work that doesn't translate into a marketable book um, or even a book period. I think, you know, there's um, a certain um, discrimination that has to come in terms of looking at um what somebody's doing and saying. Oh, well, that exists beautifully, you know, whether it be on the internet or in something that somebody's teaching or whatever, and saying it has great value, but maybe it doesn't translate um, to a book, or um, maybe somebody's got a really great idea, but at this point doesn't have a platform for it that makes us feel like we could really bring it to market in a way that. Um, would be successful for them or for us. Um, So, you know, there are a lot of different factors involved, um, but we're always, I think, at the heart of it, looking for those things that, you know, to sort of reflect back on what we were saying at the beginning of our conversation about what makes the roost book. I mean, that's what we're looking for. Those kinds of special people and projects that really feel like they bring something unique and enriching to the world and that we could make that into a book that people could really um, have some value added to their lives from.
0: Okay. So two questions about that. One is around um, platform. I've talked to quite a few publishing houses um, on this podcast over maybe the last two years. And um, it does seem like increasingly there's um, a feeling like the author, his or herself, needs to have um, developed a platform, whether it's through Instagram or Facebook or newsletter subscribers or something like that. And I wondered whether... I mean, it sounds like that is still something that you're, that's something that you are looking at as well. And, um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about what, which of those things is important to you and what you're looking at. You know, if if you get a proposal from somebody, when you go online to check them out, sort of, what are you looking at?
2: (laughs) All of those things. I mean, platform is important. Um, but that can be built in different ways. Um, So if someone's a renowned teacher who is actively out and doing workshops in different places, that is of value. (laughs) Even if they have no social media platform, that is something that will speak to um, how well people know them in the world. Um, Other people, we can look at their Instagram account and be like, oh, my God, they have 400,000 followers. That's great. Um, It it really varies and depends, but we do look at all of those things and then try to make a best decision based on um, what the book is and how important that is in getting it out.
1: Okay. And and then too, you know, I think we definitely have authors who don't have much of a platform, but um, we feel like the strength of their idea, what they have to present, can stand on its own, sort of, I mean, without author recognition. And I think specifically our, some of the Japanese craft books we were talking about before, we've we've been really delighted with the success of those. Those are subject-driven books completely. Yeah. Um, I don't think most people know or care who the author is. Right. Um, so, yeah, each book,
2: we have to kind of go through a different equation and see, you know, subject versus author versus format, and what what we can get away with.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the publishing landscape is a lot different than it was. even ten years ago, I think um the way that people shop for and find out about books um, continues to change. And you know, I think ten years ago we were looking at a landscape where independent bookstores were, really at a very low point and the chains were really dominating now we've got no borders we've got dwindling Barnes and Noble we've got Amazon taking up a huge piece of the pie which is very different way of buying books and there's somewhat of a resurgence in independent book selling um, but you know social media is such a huge part of the way that people relate to content of any kind and so you know somebody who comes to us with a really strong devoted blog following or I mean Instagram is sort of a funky thing because I think it's so easy to just like click on a follow and or click to follow and um, you know we have authors who have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers but that has not necessarily translated into sales that look anything like that but um we do rely on um on authors to help us um in finding the audience for their book and letting that audience know about it and being self promoters um i think more than any time in the past in the book publishing
0: and are there particular topics within the roost categories that are super saturated right now that you're just like enough of those? <laughs> enough books on that, you know. <laughs> well,
1: we've we've said no to every cupcake book we've received a proposal
0: <laughs> for. Um,
1: I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. We're
2: thinking of growing our home and garden list, and I feel like there's already a satur- saturation of simple living books, <laughs> Maria kondo esque. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: books. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, there isn't a particular um, subject area that we sort of, it's really so dependent on the project, you know, and even if we were to say no more sewing books, I mean, we wouldn't, but if we were to say that, then we got a proposal for one that was just really wonderfully beautiful in some way we'd break the rules so. <laughs>
0: right right and is there is there something that's particularly hot right now that you're like oh yeah that's next
1: um well we're really thinking about sort of bringing a roost take to some more traditional modalities um Maybe in terms of like herbalism, natural medicine, um, perhaps astrology, tarot, those kinds of things, giving a sort of contemporary perspective and um, package, um, something we're batting around. But uh, otherwise, I mean, we publish in the areas that we love, you know, so those are the things we're, keeping on doing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And we're more looking for inspiring individuals who have an interesting take on something. So it's less um, seeking out a particular subject or niche and more about seeking out interesting people doing cool things.
0: Right. And so when when we imagine your desk, um, Jen, this is probably your desk, I'm imagining. Um, <laughs> do, are we, I mean, you know, you hear about publishing and you think, oh, there's this giant slush pile of proposals that never get sorted through, or they just, you know, give them to an intern and <laughs> they never then you know, it takes six months or something like that. So how many of these craft book proposals, or not even just craft, but sort of roost Proposals are coming across your desk in like an average week or a month. It it so
2: varies um, per season, and I have to say I I feel very lucky that the general slush pile doesn't necessarily land on my desk. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The the projects that rise to the top of that do. Okay.
0: Um,
2: It really varies. I'm getting projects directly from authors. I'm getting projects from the slush pile, and I'm getting projects from agents. Um, and it could range anywhere from, you know, a slow period, like five projects a week to getting closer to uh, 30 in a week. Um, it really varies. Um, and I have to say it it can be really hard to keep up with, um, especially given the our daily work on top of that. Um, and how yeah. many,
0: yeah. i sorry, how many craft books or roost books do you publish in a season or in a year?
1: That varies too. <laughs> um, I think we'll have a, I mean, there was sort of a steady period where Jen and I and our old editor, um, who's part of our team, Rochelle, who didn't make the move with us, um, uh, we were all acquiring and we were all editing. And so we probably had, um, I don't know, like 30 any, books a year. Yeah. Maybe? I would say 25 to 30, books 25 a year. to 30. Books it's a, a pretty year, yeah.
2: small list. And, you know, yeah. craft wise, I'm probably working on maybe two books a season. Yeah. And that's six books a year. So it's a pretty select
1: group of titles. We've got a season coming up that has very few books on it cuz we, we moved. moved. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. I had a baby and <laughs> Rochelle didn't move and yeah. Yeah. But um we have another editor on our team now, Juri Sankar, who just came um from Timber Press to work at Roost and um so yeah, we'll probably be picking up numbers again. Um over the coming seasons
0: okay and what is can you I don't know if you can tell me this and it's okay if you can't but um, what's a typical first print run for a craft roost book
2: that also varies I mean it varies per title and subject and season
1: even yeah and it uh, a lot of it I mean we have a general sense at this point of how many copies we think a book will sell um publishing is such an interesting business and that it really is gambling, truly. Um, You know, and our print runs are based on both what we think we might be able to do in a year and the information we get from our accounts. So, you know, as a book comes up on its pub date and we see what orders are coming in, we sort of choose our number based on that. Um, It's really it really varies okay. yeah I don't want to say a specific number I feel like it would be unfair to right. say that
0: yeah no problem and um, and as you were saying it really is a gamble because you are investing upfront in something you don't know if it's going to pay off and um, and sort of related to that I wondered whether um, roost offers authors in advance
1: we do we work just like every other publisher. <laughs> Um, well, yeah. the
0: last two publishing houses I had on the podcast don't, so it's not oh, everyone. Maybe so wow. we should change. Our yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Don't get any ideas. You keep going.
1: No, we, we, we work in we work in 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 a very traditional way, offering um, an advance on
3: against um, royalties, against royalties,
1: yeah. and um, we usually pay out in thirds depending on the project, um, and um, yeah. Yeah. And often have an art budget on top of that.
0: Yeah. so okay.
1: Depending on the project
0: and right. the scope of it. So, all right. So I think that that's just good to hear because like I said, the, the last two um, publishing houses that I spoke to don't have advances and they have um, a, a whole reasoning behind that, which I respect. But, um, but I personally, um, I received adv- advances for all the three books that I've written and I feel strongly that it's something that authors should get. So I'm happy to hear that you offer them. Um, and I I talked over the weekend to my longtime friend, Blair Stalker, who <laughs> um, has a book coming out with Roost soon. And it's her second book. Her first was with a different publisher. And so I, I wanted to ask her how her experience with Roost has been. And I wasn't going <laughs> to share it if she said it was awful or something. But, um, but I had a feeling it wasn't going to be Awful. So, here is how she described the experience thus far. She says, "My experience working with Jen and Roos has been wonderful. I felt like my ideas and suggestions were listened to and respected throughout the process. The collaboration between author and publisher felt genuine, and I'm so proud of the book we produced together. And I know that from talking to a lot of craft book authors over the last 11 years or so, um, that is not always the case. And I think actually." Often it's not the case. So, what are you doing to make somebody like Blair say something like that? Well, well Jen's the best editor <laughs> in the world. <laughs> First, it's
2: just so nice to hear Blair say such sweet things. She's been such a dream to work with. Um, I really love her work, and it's been just such a pleasure. Um, but I think, you know, we recognize that um, the craft books and the cookbooks um, or any visually heavy book it's such an expression of the author. And we really try to balance both creating a book that we think fits a market and that we can sell with the author's vision and personality and voice. So we spend a lot of time trying to balance those aspects of the book because ultimately the author's name is on the cover and we want them to feel proud of the work that they're doing and good about the final product. But um, we still, need to sell it (laughs) in the end. So we're taking in all of those aspects.
1: I think another thing that I love so much about what we've created with Roost is this feeling of family with our authors. And um, we really talk about them like that, like our family of authors. And um, we have so much respect for what each of them bring. And we are doing what we do because we want to bring their work to fruition. And, um, so, you know, we try to really hear them and create books that are an expression of their voice and, um, and take good care of them. And, you know, it's the joy of, I think the work we do is getting to have those people, um, as part of our, lives and learn from them and, um, and the skills that they have. And, um, yeah, it's really wonderful. It keeps us going every day, you know, it's exciting work.
0: Yeah. And I would say that, you know, writing a book is a huge effort. And oftentimes if you've Gotten to the point where you're ready, that means you've already got some kind of an established business going. Whether, as you said earlier, you're teaching and you're known for that, or you're selling patterns, or you're doing, you know, you're blogging, or whatever. And it often takes away from that during the period when you're writing the book. And it's a huge, it's just a huge expenditure of time and energy and talent. And so I just would encourage authors to be sure, even if you've been plucked by a particular publisher, or, you know, they've reached out to you and said, we love your work, and we want to work with you, just to make sure you're working with a company who is aligned with your values, and that, you know, you can shop around and make sure you're getting what you really want. Um, I totally
2: agree with that. And I want to add to Book publishing is such a slow process. I think it can be surprising sometimes to learn that delivery of the manuscript to finished book can sometimes be upwards of a year and a half. Um, That's a long relationship you're entering into and hopefully one that you feel good about from the beginning and all through the process.
0: Yeah. And it it extends beyond that. You know, I mean, I have a book that came out in 2009 and I just got a royalty check from it last week. So it continues, you know, a long time uh, after that. So, um, okay. And I just wanted to, uh, my last publishing question is about, um, digital, digital publishing. And so, um, it sounds like Shambhala is kind of, has embraced offering ebooks for current lists. Titles and maybe is working through some of the backlists as, well, as well. Is that right? That's true.
1: We're getting as much available as ebooks as possible. Um, at this point, we have all of our books in print, I believe, are available as ebooks, and I think we're working on getting pretty much everything ever. Although the exception may be illustrated books.
2: We're still um, dabbling in that because it doesn't seem like there's the best platform for viewing il- heavily illustrated titles.
1: Yeah, it's, there's a challenge around that, around um, format and um, just technical things. And then also in terms of the market for those, um, it's not been clear on um, whether the effort is worthwhile
0: at this point. And when you mean an illustrated book, can you give me an example of what that what that is?
2: like a heavily photographed cookbook or a craft book um, where the page design is very complicated, um so it's kind of limiting on how we can present those as ebooks
0: I see okay so so maybe there's room there for an innovator to create um, a better formatting setup for craft and cookbook and other as you said heavily illustrated um books where the page format is important Mm
1: -hmm. yeah
0: yeah okay and are ebook sales good i mean is it is it worth it
1: yeah i think um ebooks a lot of people have for a long time said that ebooks would be the end of the print book and doom and gloom and whatever and it's really not the case (laughs) um uh in fact I think what we're seeing right now is ebooks supporting print books. Um, people who um, got really into reading maybe again, you know, by having a e-reader are starting to buy print books again more. Um, the curve in terms of um, e-books taking up more of the market has sort of, Uh, stabilized and print sales are up Um, and you know we we love we love ebooks I mean it means that you know people get to have access to material without having shipping or printing costs for us so you know um, those sales are nice for us and they do support um, the print sales as well and um, in terms of um, Sort of figuring out what does well as an ebook, I will say it's been pretty mysterious. Um, you know, we have authors who have maybe, you know, upwards of five books in print, and um, it does not seem to be any rhyme or reason for why some of them do well as ebooks and some of them do not sell any. So um, we like ebooks, they're mysterious, and we will keep doing them. <laughs>
0: And can you just say, I, I know I said it was my last question about publishing, but I'm, uh, I was lying. Um, can you say a few words about Amazon? Just sort of, I know you said Amazon's, you know, taking a big piece of the pie and it's a whole different way of buying books. And so what, what's important to know about that new way of buying books on Amazon? Like what, what works with Amazon?
1: Well, I think Amazon works well, first and foremost, if you already know what you want. Um, you know, I think that as an independent publisher, um, we tend to not give Amazon as much love, so to speak, as we do, um, bricks and mortar, independent publishing or independent bookselling. Um, but, um, it's really important, you know, for, for anybody making books, um, to pay attention to what's happening on Amazon and, We definitely think about it in a lot of different areas of our business, including, you know, when we're looking at cover designs and thinking about, well, is that going to read on screen? And when we say on screen, we're talking about Amazon. Um, and, you know, pricing is a sensitive issue because of the way that they discount things. And, um, I, you know, it's sort of just like working with the, with the beast (laughs) and, um, there's no, there's not a lot that, um, a publisher can do in the same way that you can with, um, a bricks and mortar store in terms of promoting a book or things like that. I mean, there are things that you can pay for certainly on Amazon, Um, and we love when, um, one of the editors at Amazon picks Mm -hmm. one of our books for, you know, a pick of the month or, you know, a particular feature that's great. But, um, yeah, I don't know. There's not, there's not that much to say about it. It's Mm -hmm. just sort of reality. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And, um, so I always ask my guests to recommend, something great that they are enjoying right now and um, it could be a book. It could be a magazine, a website, an app, or just some material or a project that you would recommend to a creative friend. So um, I'd love to get a recommendation from each of you. And um, I don't know, Sarah, if you wanted to go first.
1: Sure. I'm going to give a shout out to our new editor, Jury Sankar, who has a very, very small Um, skincare line called Horticulture. It has one product in it, so it is indeed small and handmade. Um, Juri has a vast amount of knowledge about plants from working at Timber Press for a long time and from her own studies and interest um, being a small scale gardener and having a huge interest in natural beauty and she's created this incredibly beautiful product Um, it's a base oil um, and the packaging is beautiful and it's made with the best quality ingredients and it's just um, a total treat to use and um, I love that you know, she's got this thing that she's really passionate about um, that is part of her world apart from just, you know, being um, an amazing editor. So shout out to Horticulture. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lovely. And Jen, do you have one to recommend?
2: Absolutely. Well, I'm going to um, promote one of our forthcoming authors. Um, I was just able to take Jen Hewitt's class online. Called Carve Print Pattern. And I'm now totally obsessed with her method of carving stamps to print yardage of fabric um, that you can sew anything from. So I've been having so much fun exploring that method and process right now.
0: And I've been following Jen's social media updates as she's like, I just wrote. So, you know, so many words, my manuscript, and now I get to go out <laughs> on a walk or whatever. Um, and, you know, just, you know, it's a lot of work and you have to kind of um, give people little updates here and there about how far along you are. And so how, when, do you know when Jen's book is expected to, to be released? Oh, geez. It's, it's <laughs> not okay, it's not friend. super soon, obviously, because she's still in the midst of writing it. But
2: yeah, I, she's not delivering the manuscript for another
0: Six months
2: or so. Okay, so Uh, so 2018. Probably fall 2018.
0: Okay, my guess. Awesome. So, um, so that's great. Okay, that's that's super. And um, and if anyone listening just wanted to get in touch with either of you, um, or you know, just send a message about something they've heard today, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Um, via email, probably, I have to say for me, if you send me an email, it may get lost <laughs> to the ether somewhere. Um, uh, since having my second child, um, my email inbox has become a very, very, very weedy place, <laughs> which I'm working on. Um, maybe
2: sending it to submissions at Shambhala.com with yeah. our name in the subject line and it'll find its way to
1: us. Yeah. Our assistant can, um, get things to us via that.
0: Okay, super. All right. I just wanted to make sure people had a way to reach out if they had something to follow up with or to say to you. So um, Sarah and Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the She Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you.
1: Thanks for having us, Abby. This was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks so much, Abby.
0: Great. And you've been listening to the She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshieknaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter, to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And a big thank you to our show sponsor this week, Unanimous Craft. Unanimous Craft is free to use, but with a premium membership, you get access to their comprehensive craft show calendar where they list not only the show dates, but the dates that applications open and close for shows around the country. Visit unanimouscraft.com naps for a special offer just for Walshy Naps listeners. Thank you unanimous craft. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time.